when we can process trauma, like as a family, as a community, then that's how we end it. That's how we, you know, put it out, put the fire out because trauma begets more trauma. And if we're not addressing that in a way that's holistic, that allow families to heal alongside family members, I believe that like we, we do a huge disservice. Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. While there are a ton of other leadership podcasts out there on the interwebs, this is the only one solely dedicated to developing undergraduate leaders in numerous fields. We bring in interesting leaders from a variety of disciplines and industries to dish out practical advice for entrepreneurial undergraduates embarking on their professional careers. You'll hear from leaders operating at all levels, CEOs and other C-suite individuals who are at the top of their industries, mid-career professionals only several years removed from their college days, and young leaders in school who are already doing amazing things. We feature leaders from business, diplomacy, education, journalism, engineering, law, medicine, and the sports world. It's all part of our mission here at the Bucino Leadership Institute. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome, everybody. My name is Ashley Howard. I'm a junior journalism major and student in the Bucino Leadership Institute, and today I will be your host. For this episode, we are thrilled to have Jacqueline Clements as our guest. Jacqueline Clemens is a passionate public health professional who has garnered 10 plus years in developing and deploying culturally appropriate and gender sensitive HIV risk reduction programs and interventions. Born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, she has inherited an ethic of community service from her grandmother, an active community member in the city's third ward. Jacqueline Clemens, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you, Ashley. It's nice to be here with you. Thank you. Um, so we'll go ahead and get started. You got your BA in psychology and your master's in public health. I want to know what inspired you to make that transition and career path. You know, that's a really good question. I was a psychology major and I was really clear that my trajectory was going to be medicine. And then was introduced to statistics and attended Clark Atlanta University where, where they're like, you know, it's a part of the Atlanta University Center and there's Morehouse and Spelman. And Morehouse had a public health institute where you were able to cross-register and take other classes. And so my interest in statistics led me to taking a biostatistics class as a part of that public health institute. And public health was sort of an emerging field. It wasn't very popular. Like this is like maybe 20 something years ago. And as an emerging field, like I didn't, like there wasn't a lot of information about it, but I had an opportunity by taking this class to learn more about sort of the intersection of like health and, and social determinants and, and how public health was starting to shape that and kind of changed my mind about wanting to be a physician. So I decided that I would, you know, investigate a little further public health programs. And there are some really great programs that were already existing and decided that like, yeah, like that's the direction I wanted to go and gave me an opportunity to do the things that I love, which is like, you know, community advocacy, healthcare, and understanding like the social aspects of health. So that was what shift that helped me make that shift. So what is one thing that you learned from the field of psychology that may have helped you better understand people and their health? I think that like, you know, behavior, like understanding behavior is something that I think, you know, 
this is, I feel like I'm really dating myself here, Ashley, but like when I was kind of starting out as a young public health professional, like the understanding of like how social constructs such as race, racism, access, like how these things kind of like influence health outcomes wasn't like a readily had conversation, you know, and behavior and like why people do what they do was like a really important question for me as a young person in college, as I was pursuing like my career was just kind of like, you know, I don't think that folks necessarily want to choose bad health outcomes or want to necessarily have diabetes, but like, why are they eating what they're eating? Why are they, you know, like, what's the access issues? How, why is it so hard to access healthcare? So I was just approaching a lot of things with curiosity. And I think that that led me to asking a lot of questions And those questions then led me to kind of like using that to kind of guide myself into the direction that I'm in now in terms of my field and and still asking questions around like, you know, why are things happening to one community in sort of like epidemic moments and not in others, you know, so. So going off of that, what was your biggest takeaway from being able to plan, coordinate and manage HIV treatment clinics? Oh, wow. These are some great questions that this moment that we're at, where we're talking about, you know, equity, um, there's this real reckoning in our country around race was like, you know, things that occurred to me very early in my career, as I was like working in health clinics, supporting young people and marginalized groups, women, children who were impacted by HIV and AIDS. It just became like increasingly clear to me that the more resources that people had access to, the less likely they would have these negative health outcomes. And it, you know, on one hand made me really furious and angry. And that kind of like then, you know, fueled me wanting to like do more action research and policy work. But it just, you know, it just became very clear and apparent to me that access to things were about resources and about like, you know, like what people could afford. And, and I don't think that that's, you know, that that shouldn't be the case, not in this country, not where like, you know, we have access to so much, you know, and when I think about our healthcare system, it just drives me insane that that like this is you know a multi-billion dollar industry and then there and there are people who have nothing or who go months years even without being without seeing a physician um around like really preventable easy you know um diseases like that is baffling to me even now you know and that was something that like became very apparent like we don't invest a lot of energy in prevention we don't invest a lot of energy in, in trying to keep healthy people healthy. So that was very, that became very apparent in, in like my early years of work as a public health professional. So how important was it for you to show others that a disease as serious as HIV can be prevented while working on prevention initiatives? It was really important. Like, um, I feel like it became like core, like it, it was like the thing that centered my work mostly. Like mm-hmm. I worked with young people in youth in New York City 
helping them to understand HIV prevention in a way that was digestible for them that didn't like stigmatize the disease, but also like built on, you know, like the real need for young people to protect themselves, to utilize condoms, to seek out screenings and testing was really important. But was also equally important was for me to work with systems to kind of change the way that testing was happening and making it again accessible. So like, you know, there were age requirements on testing and, and age requirements on like entering care without parental consent. A lot of my work was to try to like do advocacy to sort of um, dismantle that, to make testing accessible to anyone who goes in for a primary care visit, you know, like it removed a lot of the stigma around like the actual test and the anxiety around the test when you have to like seek out a test as opposed to it coming to you, right? So like um, some of the work that I was able to do was to like routinize HIV screening and to kind of put it in places where like, if you're getting, you know, if you're there for a, a flu shot and a provider can just say, hey, like we're doing routine HIV testing. I know you're here for a flu shot, but like, why not, you know, also get HIV screening? Like just sort of like making it as mainstream as possible. So that it's not something that, you seek out when there's been like a potential exposure. And so like that, that's those sort of prevention efforts I thought were like really important. So we're gonna jump ahead a little bit to uh, 2015 when you became the Chief Operating Officer of the Kings Against Violence Initiative in Brooklyn. I wanna know what made Brooklyn the perfect place. <laughs> I um, spent, I'm, I'm a native of New Orleans. Grew up, born and raised, spent all my time there um, and was fortunate enough to go to undergrad in Atlanta, which was fun. I love being in Atlanta at, you know, went to HBCU. So we had like all of these universities around us and Atlanta, um, you know, like I don't know, I feel like it's just, it's just such an amazing city. And then there was an opportunity for me to come to New York and um, attend graduate school. So I went, I chose to go to NYU. And when I moved there, instead of me living on campus, I moved to Bed-Stuy. And my family was like, you are moving to Bed-Stuy. And at the time, like, this is like Bed-Stuy pre-gentrification. Pre, um, like it was not pretty. And, um, and I loved the community. Like I, it felt like New Orleans to me. It reminded me of home. I love the people. I love um, the richness of Brooklyn. Like one thing about Kings County and SUNY Downstate, State University of New York Downstate, which is across the street from Kings County. They're both like, they're literally situated across the street from each other. So Kings County is a public hospital and then SUNY Downstate is a, a teaching university. So it's a med school, PA program, there's um, nursing, there's, you know, it's, it's like allied health in addition to med school. And um, you have people from the diaspora, you know, like, you know, the Caribbean, any island imaginable, St. Vincent's, Jamaica, Grenada, and then you um, African communities, Muslim communities, like the, it's, it's really rich. And that's what I love about Brooklyn is that, is that you get like a little bit of everything and a little bit of everybody. And it's always been a pleasure to be a public health professional in New York, because I feel like New York is always at the beginning of like 
any innovation. They're willing, New York, in terms of public health, my experience has been, is that they've been willing to kind of like implement innovative programs. And so that's why Brooklyn. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. um, While visiting local schools with the Kings Against Violence Initiative, what are some of the reactions or comments that students might have? (laughs) You know, I, I love young people because I think that young people are pure. Like, you know, like there's no, no agendas, no hidden agendas. Like young people can tell if you're authentic in your approach and they can tell if you're being fake, right? You know, I think that one of the things that has been really amazing about like our school program where we, you know, we go and we work with kids to talk about violence and the way that violence happens is that when we are naming things like, hey, like this is trauma, hey, this is a power, hey, this is oppression, you know, and kind of like, you know, in our curriculum, we, we lay out these things and we're addressing these things with them. It was really awesome is to be like, is to hear them be like, you know what, I knew that that feeling wasn't right. Like intuitively, they know that, that the things that they're feeling is off, but they don't have the language around like, you know, naming a thing a thing, you know? And so it's really great when like I am able to like witness young people kind of come into their own around that and they're able to come back to me be like JQ like you know they call me Miss JQ and and they might be like Miss JQ like you remember we talked about you know oppression well like this teacher let me tell you about this situation with this particular teacher like I felt like what that particular teacher may have did was oppressive and I'm like hey like that's great you know so it's like they get, they get it, they nail it. And then they know how to like apply that to their lives so that they are mindful of when they're feeling oppressed, but also mindful of when they, they themselves might be kind of operating in a somewhat oppressive way. So that's, I mean, I love, I love getting that sort of feedback about like our programs. I love hearing about how like they form partnerships with other adults. I love when, you know, that the feedback that comes back from them is that like, you know, we're not heavy on academic gains. That's not the work that we're in. We're trying to increase their sense of safety. And so when young people, and we know when young people feel safe and when they feel connected, they tend to do well. So I love like hearing about like, hey, like, you know, I'm applying to college or I'm applying to whatever as a result of like, just kind of being in a space with us. So all those things actually make me feel super good and excited and invigorated about this work. So what is the greatest part about being able to assist family members who may have witnessed their child or other relatives become victims of gunshot wounds or other trauma? I guess the greatest reward is, is just to be able to support someone through that, mm-hmm. to help people get on the other side of a traumatic injury is, is rewarding. You know, it's a lot that comes with you know, having a family member, a loved one experience something traumatic, such as, you know, an intentional injury, gunshot, stabbing, assault, especially for young people. And I think that caregivers or family members sometimes may be at a loss for like how to exactly support them. Mm -hmm. So being able to give them the tools to figure out what's the way forward, being able to give them the language Mm -hmm. to express their grief and their sadness and the space to do that. 
is all really important to me. And what it does is like, you know, we, we don't, we sometimes don't understand how like vicarious trauma. So like the trauma that we experience by just kind of being close to something, yeah. you know, yeah. how that impacts us. And so, you know, helping, helping families like, you know, kind of process trauma is, is a huge reward for me and my Kavi team, because when, when we can process trauma, like as a family, as a community, like then that's how we, that's how we end it. That's how we, you know, put it out, put the fire out because trauma begets more trauma. And if we're not addressing that in a way that's holistic, that allow families to heal alongside family members, I believe that like we, we do a huge disservice. So like our goal is to really just make sure that like, yeah, that we're supporting families and that in and of itself to just be able to just stand with someone is a huge reward for us, a a huge incentive for us to continue to do this work. What is an example of a program that you guys have put on to help the community? So we, for our community intervention, we, we have hosted social justice mini camps and it would be like, you know, like during winter recess or spring break and we would get young people together, mostly middle schoolers. And we would host like in a way that you would host camp, you know, instead of like young people just kind of being home held up doing spring break, not doing much, mm-hmm. we would host these half day mini camps where young people would get an opportunity to come and learn about social justice constructs. And like one of my favorite ones was maybe like two years ago. And we had like all these really phenomenal speakers from the Brooklyn community come in. Young people learned about um, how to write letters to legislators and um, around social justice issues or issues that are important to them in their community. And then they like wrote to their local legislators. And so that was like, like such an invigorating exercise for me. Like I always love like highlighting for young people the the um, power of like the political process and it was dope like our kids really enjoyed it they were like oh I see this person on tv all the time so it was kind of like you know good for them for us to kind of like allow them to put pictures and faces to names it was a great activity and a great camp so I love doing things like that. And those are, that's like our community intervention work is to support middle schoolers to do restorative justice training. So we train young people on restorative justice practices, which is a practice that we hold close to us and we feel is really effective in supporting young people. Um, but th- those camps are by far my favorite. So I'm sure that COVID-19 has changed the way you and many others do their jobs. What do your day-to-day job duties consist of amidst the pandemic? Oh, God. Besides homeschooling. (laughs) So, you know, like I was working remotely before the pandemic. Just because a lot of my job functions doesn't require me to be like in the same physical space as my staff. Mm -hmm. But um, so like, and I enjoy working remotely, but it has been compounded by homeschooling, Mm -hmm. having a baby. My husband is home, like he was laid off from his position and I'm running an organization, right? And so, but you know, like we're all like in the house together. And so that happened, right? 
and then COVID, like we're in the, we are in the healthcare setting. Like we're, our work is primarily in the hospital. So we're hospital based. Um, we're based at Kings County in Brooklyn and we're based in the emergency department. You know, we, we lost a lot of people who were like close to us who, you know, have like trained and, um, have trained our, our founder are like in, are just like, we're key staff in our emergency department. They were our colleagues. And then, um, what was happened simultaneously was that like, there was a real demand for our services because there was an uptick in violence. So it has been quite challenging and like this increased demand to also like respond we really wanted to make sure that our kids felt held. Um, so we stopped immediately doing our, we have groups that we have weekly. We stopped our groups and we started doing virtual groups. But the first thing we wanted to do was just talk to all of our kids, like individually. It was like 250 students and we were making phone calls. And we wanted to know about like, you know, if there was any food insecurity, um, did they need laptops? Like what was their digital needs? because we knew that that was a real, there was some real access issues and New York city did a great job of responding, but we wanted to just make sure that everyone was okay. And then we really got to work. I particularly got to work with like a lot of grant writing to write, to get money for mental health services. We wanted therapists in our sessions. We wanted therapists in the hospital with our patients. And because our colleagues work so intimately with our patients. We wanted to make sure that we were providing mental health and wellness support for frontline workers. So my day-to-day got really hectic and, and the cadence of it was like crazy, but you know, I was just like, I knew that it was in the cadence that I can, I, I would be able to maintain and keep up. But I, so I was really intentional about this kind of like, plugging through and trying to, you know, do the work and meet the demands, but also making sure that I carved out space for taking care of myself. So a lot of deep breathing, yoga, meditation, but yeah, it was intense, you know, and it still is like, I feel like we're, you know, we're still in it definitely, but like, you know, things have kind of slowed down a bit, but you know, like in the hospital, when there was this, that uptick kind of like around the beginning of fall or maybe not fall, maybe like you know, Christmas time, we, we started seeing an increase in the hospital and our, you know, our space got crazy again. So, you know, we're managing the day-to-day stuff is, you know, on me and I'm doing my best and I'm trying to root that in like making sure that I also take care of myself. That's good. Um, in which ways has your grandmother who has also played a big role in community service mm-hmm. impact you? Wow, Ashley. Um, we, we are all like, you know, stand on the shoulders of our ancestors, right? And my grandmother, my aunt, there are like so many women and men that I can name mm-hmm. who like have just made it very clear to me to whom much is given, much is expected. Right. And um, I like grew out of some really dire constraints, like, you know, like my life could have gone in any which direction. Mm -hmm. And luckily for me, I feel blessed in that, like my trajectory took me in the, in the more positive direction. And that like, I'm able to support other young people, mentor and 
develop people and I pride myself on on giving back. And I feel like, you know, like it's the greatest service to be in service of, of other people. And so I, you know, I hold my grandma, I lift her up whenever I am able to kind of like do this work or whenever I need a reminder about why I do this work. Um, it's, you know, violence prevention, HIV, those aren't like easy causes to kind of take up and do. And, um, you know, I could easily like do some cushy healthcare administration job, but I really feel committed to community. And, uh, and a lot of that is because of my grandmother and it's because of this idea of like, you know, you've been given these opportunities, you, doors have been open for you and it's important for you to reach back and open those doors for others. That's sweet. So the last two questions are kind of leadership based. So um, do you have any recommendations on books that aspiring leaders should read? Let's see. Yeah, you know, I do. I think that like aspiring leaders should probably check out Who Moved My Cheese? <laughs> I like it's such a short read and it's so good. And I feel like it's a really good way to kind of think about the psychology of you as a leader. And I think that that's like an important fact that people need to understand who they are before they before they're put in a position of leadership. It and having that clear sort of idea about um, who you are is really helpful. Other books, mm. There's this guy, Bill Prasmore. I like to dive into his book. He talks a lot about change and how to like lead effective change. And who else? I would say that. I mean, like, I feel like those two are good examples. I can't think of the rest of them off the top of my head. But but yeah, and I think I think I do think that, you know, for like leadership stuff, like I, I do think that reading is really important reading content on your like specified areas is really important. Um, one of the things that a practice that I tend to have is like, I, you know, I subscribe to journal articles from my field and, um, and I try to like, you know, make sure that like I'm that I stay abreast of kind of current trends and that I'm understanding, especially as like, I think, you know, I hate to say this again, but like, as I'm like growing older in my career, like it's important for me to kind of like stay on top of like what's trending. And I think journal articles are a great way to do that. So like your industry journal or your industry newspaper is, is key. So um, who is someone that you would consider a leader that you follow on social media or have a connection on LinkedIn? I have a lot of people. Um, I'm a part of several groups on Facebook that is like for black women in public health. And I'm inspired by like all the women in that group, you know, like there are some young women who are like fresh out of their public health programs and they're so inspiring, like with the things that they're doing, um, the gumption that I feel like they have around like pursuing your career, the ideas I love reading their posts and hearing their ideas about their thesis and research papers. Um, and it's like a real good community for like feeding off each other, you know? Um, there is this woman, Brooke Babby Ritchie. Um, she's also a really amazing 
African-American woman who I find inspiring and I follow a lot of her. She just recently started a podcast um, about nonprofit leadership. I really find her inspiring and I listen to her podcast and I read her her, um, weekly emails. And then just on a side note, I am surrounded by a really amazing group of women who are my sisters who I've been friends with like for again, uh, I thought aging, but 20 something years. And, you know, they're all like, you know, heavyweights in their respective fields from midwifery to finance, HR. We all kind of like started out in, in um, college together. Some are professors teaching math. Some are educators running elementary schools here in Atlanta. They're all over the place. And, you know, because of that group and such and that diversity of fields that we're all in, again, we also kind of like feed off each other and inspire each other. So the last question is, what advice would you give to someone who aspires to change the world? Do it. Do it. Change it. And just know that, like, there is no perfect way. I think that like um, there's no perfect path to doing that, you know, and there's, there is other people who are going to charter that course with you and wanting to change the world and they're going to have their imprint in their lane and your lane and your imprint is going to be your lane and your imprint. And I think that like what's important, what's important is to focus on your impact you know, um, and nothing else, anything else undermines all the other things you've done, right? All the things that you have. And I think that we can all, we can all play our part and we can all have our impact. So, yeah. So I would just encourage them to like, do it, dare to do it. Well, that's all we have time for today, guys. Thank you, Jaquel Clemens, for coming on the podcast. And to our listeners out there, we'll see you guys soon. On behalf of everyone at the Bucino Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank all of our podcast listeners, the podcast team, as well as 89.5 WSOU Pirate Radio for allowing us to use their facilities. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership and on Twitter at Shu Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.